Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Tell me, do you know my lady Sylvia? <laughs> she that your worship loves? What? Why? Why, how know you that I am in love? Marry, sir, by these special marks. First, you have learned, like Proteus, to wreathe your arms like a malcontent, to relish a love song like a Robin Redbreast, to walk alone like one that had the pestilence, to sigh like a schoolboy that's lost his ABC, to weep like a young wench that has buried her grandam. To fast like one that takes diet. To watch like one that fears robbing. To speak puling like a beggar at Hallow Mass. You were once, when you laughed, to crow like a cock. When you walked, to walk like one of the lions. When you fasted, it was presently after dinner. When you looked sadly, it was for want of money. And now... You are metamorphosed with a mistress that when I look on you, I can hardly think you my master. Are all these things perceived in me? They are all perceived without you. <laughs> without me, they cannot. Nay, without you, that's certain. For without you were so simple, none else would. But you were so without these follies, that these follies are within you and shine through you like the water in a urinal. <laughs> but not an eye that sees you, but is a physician to comment on your malady. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing, your podcast for all things Shakespeare. My name is Tim McIntosh and I have two special guests who I am going to introduce to you in just a moment. If you are tuning in, you are tuning in to a one podcast edition of Two Gentlemen of Verona. Um, if this is your first time with us, ordinarily we do six episode podcasts on plays and the six, the six episodes basically track the five acts of each Shakespeare play plus a Q&A episode. But Two Gentlemen is a little bit different because it's not one of Shakespeare's more celebrated plays. It's not performed all that often. So what we're trying to do 
is just do one episode podcast for some of these, I'm going to call them smaller plays. It's not a comment on the length of the play, for sure. It's a long play. Um, It's a comment on how often the play is produced. Okay, so that is my background about this play. Now let me introduce our special guests. Emily and Ian Andrews. Emily is Associate Director at Center for Lit, and she is a candidate for the MA in Humanities at Faulkner University. She and Ian live and work in Spokane, Washington, where she reads, writes, podcasts, and reads. Is that right, Emily? (laughs) That'll do. That's right. I get the the sense that you read a little bit. Just a little. Yeah. Just a little bit. Yeah. Ian... Her husband is an associate director for Center for Lit and host of Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. When he's not working, he spends his time pursuing a master of divinity at Knox Theological, and he also indulges an abiding passion for film and television. Would one of you tell our listeners before we get going here, what is the Center for Lit? Yeah, happy to do it. Uh, Center for Lit is... Originally, a curriculum company um, that set out to help homeschool moms and dads uh, discuss works of literature with their children, have profitable thematic conversations. Since then, it's grown into a a blossoming online academy and then also a professional development hub for classical school English teachers in different parts of the country. And we host a couple of podcasts, which is how we came in in contact with shows like this one, Tim. We're really glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Bibliophiles is the name of your podcast. It is, yes. What are you guys, what have you been talking about recently on Bibliophiles? Well, we're presently between seasons. Our last season, Emily, correct me if I'm wrong here, was a season on on film as literature. Yep. Um, so discussing the sometimes tension, but also happy marriage of great novels and their film adaptations. We did a little bit of the good, the bad, and the ugly, no pun intended, right? Here are adaptations that work. Very much intended. <laughs> adaptations that didn't work uh, and why. Can you give me an adaptation that worked and an adaptation that didn't work? I know I'm calling, like, you're having to remember, like, wait, what exactly? I probably have like, a really strong. <laughs> right. Emily, what about you? Give him one that worked. We are very pro, well, this is relates to this podcast. We're very pro Kenneth Branagh. So, oh, yeah. We're all part of his fan club. Cinderella. We actually got in touch with the Branagh fan club who are themselves in touch. We have Branagh's mailing address now. There no was way. a yeah. There was a time when Emily reached out just off the top of her head, like ah, I wonder if there's a fan club, and the guy that runs the fan club responded by giving us contact information Stop. for Sir Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. So so, so what's the follow up going to be there? Probably a giant love letter. <laughs> yeah. Dear yeah. Ken, <laughs> it's Dear Emily Ken. and Ian. What up? Hi. Why? Wow. Yeah. Hi. Dude. Text me. <laughs> Yeah. Text me, Ken. Text me. Okay. Well, what's an adaptation that didn't work? Officially, I think we covered your. That was a Missy Andrews special. She covered. Uh, what was the name of that book? The, the Tale Mouse. of Despero. Yeah. Wait, what? Yeah. So Kate DeCamelo's Tale of Despero. Um, okay. A book for young readers. Really beautiful work of juvenile fiction that was made into a big budget Hollywood animated film that was terrible. Um, so she praised the novel and discussed why the film was bad. Okay. Great novel, bad film. Yep. Okay. That I kind of want to bring you guys back for 
great adaptations of Shakespeare plays, terrible adaptations of Shakespeare plays. Maybe oh, that's a that future podcast. Yeah. That would be really fun. Yeah. Um, okay. I understand based on something that you guys said off the air before we started recording that you guys have been having a conversation or would it be more <laughs> accurately termed a disagreement, maybe even an argument about the closing scene of this play? Is that, is that true? And which of the, is it a conversation? Is it an argument? What is it? And I think marriages could be made or broken on the discussion about the final scene of this play. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fight. So whatever it is, it's high stakes. Emily. Yeah, it's high stakes. Well, actually, uh, just a very brief story. When we were first married very early, we went out on a date to see a film. And um, and the dinner that we had after the film was one of our first large-scale knockdown drag-out wars. Oh, because wow. what I thought about the movie contradicted Emily's reading of the movie and we're both so passionate about it. We just couldn't drop it. And yeah. that, that tone has definitely served us <laughs> well in literary discussion. Uh, years. <laughs> okay. Okay. So this is kind of like a little bit of a foundational, what pillar for your marriage. Yeah. Hotly debated literary scenes. My wife and I, um, for my birthday when we were dating and we had not been dating very long, like three months, I'm going to guess she bought me, bought us tickets to go see a play at, I believe the Alliance theater in Atlanta, which is known. And it's a really top flight theater, beautiful production, great actors, everything. And we sit down for this play and she knows how important theater is to me. I'm an actor, director, a playwright. You know, theater is like, I mean, next to the church, an empty theater is to me the most sacred space on the planet. And that is not like, I'm not exaggerating one mm -hmm. bit at all. That's a beautiful we, idea. Yeah, it really is. I could go sit in an empty theater, like, you know, two hours before a play and be the most happy and kind of like spiritually alive person that I could be. But that's another subject. I love that. <laughs> we go to the play and 10 minutes in, I was like, oh man, these are really great actors. This is a terrible play. I hope they, it had all these kind of like just trope topics that are just kind of like knee jerk kind of appeals for emotional responses. There's no depth in it whatsoever. Everything is hackneyed. But I don't know what Galen is thinking about this at <laughs> all. I have no idea. She didn't, she did not buy the tickets knowing anything about the play. Right. And so I'm like double thinking everything. And I'm like, dude, you need to be prepared to like find the good things about this play if she likes it. That's so a difference, it's a difference immediately between our marriage and your marriage, yeah. apparently. Yeah. <laughs> or at least between your level of maturity at three months and mine at one year of marriage. <laughs> totally. So I'm thinking about all the good things. And then we get to intermission, you know, we're out there getting water or whatever. And I'm like, oh my gosh, who's going to go first and talk about what they think <laughs> about this play? And I actually think that she asked the question first, like, so what do you think? And I was like, Man, I just, I love the actors. Uh, the production <laughs> values are really high. And she's like, uh huh. 
uh, gosh, the music, woo. I mean, just really <laughs> moving music. Uh-huh. I don't like this play at all. And you could like her show. She just relaxed. She was like, Oh, me neither. I think it's <laughs> terrible. And it's like, Oh, good. Then, oh my know. good. You know, it's like three months in, we were like in love with each other. And this was and the moment. It was, it was a really <laughs> big moment and it was so fun and satisfying to watch the second half of the play just being like, what are they doing? <laughs> this is so much crap. Okay. Uh, that's great. What an awesome <laughs> it was, it was really, we really, we laugh about it a lot. Oh, okay. Man. Now, all of that is prologue for two gentlemen of Verona. I want to say a couple things. I'm going to talk here just for a second. I want to say a couple things about the play and the overall scheme of Shakespeare. I'm going to do a hyper quick plot review. And then I want to talk about the last scene because the last scene has a troubling aspect to it. I don't even know what you guys have like been talking about, but I suspect I do know what you have been talking about because there's a problem in the closing scene of the play. Okay. Let me back up. People think this is Shakespeare's first play when they've reconstructed the timeline of, you know, the chronology of Shakespeare's plays, this is what they think is the very first play, right? So I, I don't know that anybody who loves Shakespeare who would say, yeah, this belongs in the top 10 of his work. <laughs> um, no, this is like, a, you know, maybe the playwright of the West and this is his first play. And for me, there are all these tropes in it that show up over and over in Shakespeare's work. I'll talk about that later. But it's important to remember, I think, this is Shakespeare's first play. 1589, roughly to 1595 is when they think it was written. It's a, it's a tough play to date. It's a comedy, and it has um, a lot of the standard kind of it fulfills some of the standard expectations for comedies. Namely, there's a marriage at the end, or at least a promised, the promise of a marriage at the end. Okay. The story is basically about two friends who are living in Verona, Valentine, Valentine, and Proteus. It begins when Valentine leaves home. He goes to Milan. Proteus stays at home because he is in love with Julia, who lives in Verona. But then... Proteus's dad sends him to Milan. Okay. But before he leaves, he's like, Julia, I love you so much. I'm going to be with you forever. Trust me. Julia's like, I do. I trust you. And that is a fatal, not fatal. That's not right. Silly, Julia. It's silly, Julia. Okay. So now we cut to Milan before Proteus has arrived. Valentine is in love with the Duke's daughter, Sylvia. They are madly in love. Um, and then Proteus, the friend of Valentine, arrives, and guess what happens? Complication. Proteus falls in love with Sylvia at first sight. This is going to be in Shakespeare's corpus, um, a tradition. Everyone who falls in love does not fall in love slowly over the course of six months of dinner and dating. It is love at first sight. It's radical. It's like burn the barns down. I must have this woman. I must have this man, right? And so that's what this play, that's how this play begins. But now there's this rivalry between Proteus and Valentine. So um, 
He falls in love with Sylvia, does Proteus. He reveals to the Duke that Sylvia and Valentine are going to elope. So he does his buddy wrong. When the Duke hears this, he banishes Valentine. Now, meanwhile, it's going to get more complicated because Proteus's earlier love, Julia, shows up in Milan, but she shows up not as Julia, but as a page, as a male page, another great Shakespeare trope, um, like a, gen- a hidden gender. This one, Julia, disguised as a male. Okay, now Valentine, banished, meets these outlaws, becomes the leader of the outlaws, and Sylvia, who's really in love with Valentine and not Proteus, she's also seized by the outlaws. Proteus rescues her, and then when she spurns him and hears the thing, he apparently tries to rape her or at least says that he's going to. Valentine swoops into the rescue, stops the rape, but out of friendship offers Sylvia, disguised as a male, to Proteus. Sylvia reveals, oh, I'm actually Sylvia. I'm sorry, 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 sorry. That's not right. Out of friendship, he offers to yield Sylvia's to Proteus. Julia, however, reveals her identity, regains Proteus's love. Two weddings are planned. Valentine with Sylvia, Proteus with Julia. Okay. I suspect it's Proteus's like threat of rape to Sylvia is the issue, right? There was it centers around that issue. Yeah, it's that scene for for certain. Emily, I'll let you. Yeah. Well, it has to do with the offer that Valentine Valentine Uh makes to uh, Proteus. Ian, <laughs> I, I came away with the traditional reading that you just gave, that it appears as though he is offering his new one love back to the man who tried to rape her. Uh-huh. But Ian is, from my perspective, trying to do like contortionist <laughs> uh-huh. moves <Okay>. to, uh-huh. <laughs> to try to work around that reading, <laughs> which I'll let him explain. <laughs> okay, can we, before Ian... Um does his contortionist <laughs> tricks the way that Ian does. Um, I know I can, I can guess Emily, what the problem is with this, but I actually want to hear you say like, what, what, how are you feeling about this? Well, I mean, I won't lie. Ian is very persuasive. And so I am, I am entertaining the ideas that he's going to present, but my initial reaction is to see that Shakespeare is doing his Shakespeare thing. He's putting us in a problem. Maybe like I've heard that this is sometimes discussed as an early problem play. Mm. Uh, and it appears as though these female characters that he's gone to great lengths to portray to us in a well-rounded characterization, all of a sudden lose all autonomy and become kind of commodified as the men trade them back and forth and they are silent. In the beautiful. Background. Beautiful. That's beautiful. Okay. That was my reading. Ian, <laughs> I am, I am, we are entertaining offers. We are entertaining um, alternative suggestions. Okay. Well, so I'll say, first of all, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And, and right. one of the biggest issues for me in the play is, is this commodification of, of women. On the one hand, Julia and Sylvia um, stand up for themselves and are apparently a very strong character. They're expeditious and strong-willed and clear when no one else in the play is really all that clear about anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're really impressive characters. And yet 
when it comes time for decision making, they recede into the background and and they're more or less objects. So that's that's a problem that I agree with and see. My own interpretation is about the nature of the play itself, I think, because it's Shakespeare mm. and I want to read it as something um, earnest, perceptive and powerful. Mm-hmm. But it is kind of a farce, though. It reads like oh. kind of a farce, and so it, I think the the rape scene and the and the the reconciliation between Proteus and, and Valentine is a great um, test case for that question. If we read it as um, there's a rape attempted, and then Proteus repents, mm-hmm. Valentine forgives him and immediately hands his, as Emily put it so eloquently, his new one love back to the man who tried to rape her. Mm-hmm. This is a farce. And we mm-hmm. have to call into question that moment of forgiveness. Is he is he holding up something pure, beautiful, and true to us, or is this farcical and ridiculous? However, if we read it instead as not an offer of the woman back to the man who tried to rape her, but an offer of the self that Valentine is now free to be in the presence of his love back to his friend, it gets to retain its Say power. that again, Ian. Say that again. Yeah. So throughout the play... Um, all of the lovers in their their monologues about love talk yeah. about the self all the time. Yeah. They basically say, if I am with my love, I am myself. And if I reject my love, I reject myself. Mm. And so there's this twinning of those two, two ideas. And the actual line, and Emily has the play over there, but the actual line is something like, um, I, I need to read it to you because it does hinge on the... We go, well, let's let's go back and read it. C- continue with your case. Yeah. So the case is that what Valentine is offering is his love, not the woman that he loves, but his love. He's offering himself back to Proteus in fellowship and in um, unity again. And in that way, it's descriptive. And it's with the language, the heightened language, um, it's descriptive of Shakespeare's point about friendship in the play. Yeah. Um, And so it gets it out. It gets Shakespeare out of writing a farce and into writing something that's a little bit more weighty. What's appealing about that is that the threat of rape is not just um, a rupture between Proteus and Sylvia, but it's also a further rupture of this, these two best friends, mm. Valentine and are you guys saying Valentine or Valentine? I've been saying Valentine, but great. Um, between Valentine and Proteus, which at the beginning of the play, it opens up and I, and it's like, it's so warm between the two of them. They clearly have like a deep affection for each other. And then when Proteus falls in love with Sylvia, you know, like, okay, man, the friendship is either over or under dire threat. Mm-hmm. So you're reading in kind of patches both Proteus and Sylvia, not into a romantic pairing, but into kind of like a, I don't know, companionship of some sort going forward and also repairs the damage done between Proteus and Valentine. Valentine. Yeah. Yeah. And Emily, I think the line is all all that I have in Sylvia. All that was mine in Sylvia I give to thee. Yeah. I think it's also really compelling if we read the play from a theological perspective with Valentine as the god of love and Proteus as the changeable one or primordial matter or primordial man with their names kind of being symbolic of deeper issues. I 
I want you to keep going in this thought, but I want to insert this to kind of make your case, Emily. The, some of the last lines of the play, Julia, who is now revealed, she was hidden as a page. Now she reveals herself to Proteus. Behold her that gave aim to all thy oaths. Referring back to earlier in the play, Proteus, I love you. I'll never break my word to you. Behold her that gave aim to all thy, thy oaths and entertained them deeply in her heart. How oft hast thou with perjury cleft the root? O Proteus, let this habit make thee blush. Be thou ashamed that I have took, that I have took upon me such an immodest raiment. If shame live in a disguise of love, it is the lesser blot. Modesty finds women to change their shapes than men their minds. And Proteus's response, this is to your point, Emily, then men their minds, tis true. Oh, heaven were man, but constant, he were perfect. That one error fills him with faults, makes him run through all the sins. Inconstancy falls off ere it begins. That's strong. Very. Mm-hmm. Emily, can you can you go on? I mean, this is is love the kind of theological virtue that gives constancy. Is this? something that we're supposed to take to the, from the conclusion of the play, something different. Mm. It reminds me of much ado when Benedict says man is a giddy thing. And that is my conclusion. And the only rep- reparation to be made in that play is a marriage. And uh, I always feel like Shakespeare is working on two levels, an ideal level, and then the mm. real, the, the, the fallen real world. And the fall in real marriage is going to be a mess. <laughs> These people are in for a rough time when it comes yeah. to their marriage on this earth. But that marriage represents something bigger than them. Um, and it's looking forward to what that marriage represents, the ideal that I think does fix them, that makes the final line of the play one house, one feast, right? That yeah. That's the hope that changeable man has to place in, place their hope in. Emily, since you brought up Much Ado About Nothing, I'm considering it fair game to now question the both of you about the conclusion of Much Ado About Nothing. Because I think the marriage between Benedict and Beatrice, it's like everybody loves it. Oh my gosh, finally, they're together. But the marriage between Hero and what is her, is her husband's name? Is it Claudio? I can't remember. Uh, yeah, it is Claudio. Claudio. Claudio, act three, um, is at the marriage altar with Hero, unjustly suspects Hero of cheating on him, and not only leaves her at the altar, but like publicly shames her in front of her father, all of her friends and family, and is like, I'm out. And then at the end of the play, Hero Claudio learns, no, she's been true and faithful this whole time, and they are going to be married again, right? Hmm. And it's tough considering what what Claudio has done. It's really tough. And it felt to me, the ending of this play felt to me before I heard Ian and maybe your kind of justification for it. It felt to me like another one of those, those endings where, yeah, okay, Hero is supposed to be happy with this situation, 
but she can't be happy with this situation, but she's just got to kind of go along with it anyway. Hmm. That's how it felt like to me. So all that is prefaced to say, Emily, what do you think about the end of Much Ado About Nothing? I think it might actually be a cleaner representation of what I'm talking about with really? the ideal and the real uh, hero and Claudio representing more of a theological conversation because there's uh, the cycle of repentance and forgiveness and mm-hmm. death and resurrection that takes place there. Whereas Benedict and Beatrice is the quintessential real life relationship that he portrays in fact when you said like none of the couples in shakespeare date they always immediately fall in love well that's not true of them they've known each other of old yeah um so the two levels of the marriage conversation i think come across and much ado that way yeah ian do you see it similarly yeah i really like what emily's saying in two gentlemen um it's more believable to me that Valentine and Sylvia are happy than it is that Julia is supposed to be happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, but maybe it's as simple as to say that Shakespeare's not writing about womanhood in this play, mm-hmm. um, that he's, he's writing about manhood and, and what is it substance and what justifies it even when it's, when it fails. Um, I don't know if that's a sufficient answer, but I don't know. Julia gets pretty wrecked. In she this. does. I mean, man, she poor does. Julia just gets <laughs> shafted in this play. It's terrible. She's watching Proteus woo Sylvia at one point and say all these beautiful things to her. Although he's doing it supposedly for someone else, but of course he's doing it for himself. And she has to be witness to this, and we have to be witness to her being witness to them. It's it's like a causal chain of suffering. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, really right. Yeah, yeah, it is really rough. Um, The play begins as a play about friendship, but it's very obviously also a play about romantic relationships. How do the romantic relationships get in the way of the friendships in this play? (laughs) You're like. In all the ways that we've just discussed. <laughs> all of them. In ways. all the ways that we've just discussed. Mm. I mean, maybe it's he's writing about love too. Like not um, and maybe about the distinction between love and romance. Mm. You could call what Valentine has for Sylvia love, and what Proteus has for multiple women as the mood strikes him as romance. Um, I wonder if that's a helpful distinction. What do you think, Emily? Mm. I Yes, because then love can encompass friendship as well and right. not just male-female relationships. Mm. But it strikes me that uh, they, the beginning of the play, what Ian was talking about earlier about them identifying with one another, they do that several times at the beginning of the play. Proteus and Valentine are inter- interchangeable in their own minds. And that just you can't keep that kind of friendship and have a healthy marriage at the mm. same time. And I wonder how much of that has to do with the time period and uh, them seeing men as equals and and actually capable of being interchangeable in a way that men and women maybe weren't. And so is a a marriage a relationship of equals or um, is it can it actually be a friendship inside of a marriage or is or do you lose one to gain the other? 
I'm going to say this back to you to see if I understood what you were saying. Perhaps Renaissance England or late medieval England, um, Shakespeare's time, saw men as having the capacity of being um, true peers, equal in like stature, capacity, value, et cetera. But maybe um, medieval, late Renaissance England did not see women as having the same capacity, et cetera, et cetera. And so any marriage between a man and a woman would necessarily be like not a marriage of equals. Is that is that the question? Yeah, I, I think so. And because yeah. you can't, because to be a man and wife is to be one, the oneness of male and male relationships has to be broken at that point. Now, I think Shakespeare goes on in his career to challenge that perspective. Right. Um, but for reasons, it's at least I think a background issue at stake here. Yeah. Yeah, for reasons like who would have a problem? Yeah. <laughs> um, Galen and I, I'm sorry, we're like talking about marriage. I feel like <laughs> we have permission because you guys are married, yeah, it's, and so it's now also I'm like, in the play. So here we <laughs> yeah, it is. It is in the play. Um, I'm older. You know, I I got married really late in life. I'm 51, and Galen is younger than me. She's still in her 30s, but she's you know, it, it's even a little bit late for her, I think, according to kind of like the world we live in. And so, you know, we're both kind of like consider ourselves kind of like wizened veterans of life at this point. And, and it's occurred to me how much of like the marriage advice, um, how would I describe it? Industry is, I'm just so suspicious of all mm. of it because two people are two people and that, that kind of chemistry, the strange, unique dilemmas and disagreements and um, connection points that you have with each other are so contingent upon the two personalities that are in this marriage, right? No kidding. And, and but Gail and I kind of joke like, okay, but if we had to just settle on one thing to say, this is the thing that makes for a happy marriage, what would the thing be? And I think it's probably you have to be married to somebody who's your peer. Mm. Like it doesn't mean that you have to be the same. It doesn't mean that you have to have, you know, all the same interests. We don't, but you have to, you have to respect each other. Um, you have to be peers enough to respect the other person. Like if I ask a question about, um, a person in our lives. And I'm like, Hey, Galen, I wonder if this person has ill motives for this and this and this reason. She has like the absolute trump card to say, no, I don't think so. Or to say, yeah, I mm -hmm. think so also. And like, I have so much trust in her ability to evaluate people because she's just proven it over and over and over again, mm -hmm. that it's like, okay, I don't have to all, I don't have to be the only one who's doing that work. You know, I really mm -hmm. trust her. And if she has something that she needs to kind of like delegate to me, uh, whatever it is, she has to be able to trust me that, you know, I'm going to make a good decision, not necessarily going to be the same decision that she would make, but she will, she needs to kind of like trust 
that, okay, if Tim thought about it and this is where he landed on, I'm going to trust that's like a good decision. I might even mm-hmm. disagree with it. We might dis, you know, we might hash it out. But um, so all that to say, um, Emily, if you're right, if Renaissance, if the Renaissance view of men and women was we can't really have a marriage of equals, the man is always going to be the sort of like superior, not just culturally, but in like, you know, all the ways. And Shakespeare is Shakespeare is um complaining about that, offering a different vision than that. Yeah. Like that's something to get really excited about. Yeah, totally. That's something to get really excited about. There's potentially some evidence for that if we read the extremely enjoyable, humorous interjections of Lance in the play. Mm. Especially I'm thinking of the passage where he evaluates his own lover and has made a pros and cons list about her um various <laughs> traits. Mm-hmm. And the more or less, and this is oversimplifying, but more or less he says, here are a bunch of the unseemly things about the woman that I am in love with. And here are all of the ways that I am willing to overlook them and love her anyway. Mm. In sharp contrast to Valentine and Proteus, who both in their own ways um hold their loves up as paragons of all conceivable virtues. Uh-huh. 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 Faultless in every sense. And uh one of those is true to life. The other one not so much. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So maybe maybe he is talking a little bit more about love and marriage than than about friendship under the surface. Lance is kind of a clown figure in the play. You know, like yeah. um or maybe like a traditional fool character in the play. He's brought on for comic relief. He's got a dog with him the first time that he shows up and, you know, he's easy to laugh at, but like so many fools in Shakespeare, I'm thinking, thinking of Twelfth Night, I'm thinking of King Lear. The fool is the person who's like speaking the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not someone who is just meant to entertain. Of course they do that, but there's always right. a kind of slanted deep truth that's being spoken oftentimes to someone in real authority that has a lot of power in this case it seems a little bit different he's more of kind of like sideshow bob with like real (laughs) genuine wisdom you know like there's no like huge authority figures in the play maybe aside from the duke um the proteus and valentine valentine are not i don't know what did you say in your notes tim the teens, two teens of Verona or something yeah, like that. <laughs> yeah. Might that be a better title? Uh, maybe so. Yeah. Lance does substitute himself uh, for his dog. Right? He takes the beating in the place of his dog, which is ridiculous, but also potentially mirroring what Valentine does for Proteus at the end of the play, making Proteus the dog. Yeah. But- <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a really interesting observation. Um, do you like this play? I thought it was fun. I think <laughs> it's not the most subtle of Shakespeare's plays. Mm. And Ian and I had that conversation as well. <laughs> he was laughing. <laughs> it's not the most yeah. subtle. What What about it seems blunt? Do you care to elaborate? Yeah, I um, I like the word blunt, but more so to me, it seems like the the guy that wrote the guy that wrote Hamlet wrote this play Mm -hmm. and Hamlet is a masterpiece. It's so Mm -hmm. um, technically sound and carefully constructed. And um, 
none of the things, even if they're, even if something that a character says is crazy, Mm -hmm. it's crazy in a way that adds to the character that builds the plot that makes the world more seamless in this play characters turn a 180 at the drop of a hat with little to no justification, which is one of the reasons it it reads like a farce to me. Yeah. Um, And so that's what I would say is in terms of its lack of subtlety. um, I think he might actually be out to make you laugh a lot. That might be one of his principal goals. It's a funny, it's entertaining. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's simple. I think it's a great crash course in learning Shakespeare, maybe learning to read Shakespeare. Yeah. One of the other things, and Tim, you would know this better than I than I do. Um, I noticed that he uses some words that I associate with Shakespeare over and over again mm. to a greater extent than he does in the other plays. So, like mm. swinged, for example, swinge me. Um, he, he uses. <laughs> I didn't that notice this probably half a dozen times in this play that I noticed, and there are a couple of other phrases I wish I could think of them that are that are quintessential Shakespeare phrases, but that he um, that he uses them more sparingly late in yeah. later plays. It makes me wonder if his style is still developing here in this first play Mm -hmm. as well as everything else. Yeah. Which is really interesting to me. I want to start a little segment on these podcasts called obscure Shakespeare phrase or obscure obscure (laughs) Shakespeare word, you know, for each play. You know, the one that stuck out to me in this play and it shows up in other plays is, did you notice the references to the chameleon? Mm Mm-hmm. The I chameleon did. that eats the air. Yep. I tried to just find the little explanatory note, um, but I didn't find it. So I'm doing this from memory because sh- uh, uh, the chameleon that eats the air shows up in Hamlet also. I think it was believed that chameleons ate air. That was their, like, that's how they themselves and you're like what in the world but then i can't show our listeners like (laughs) like what that would look like but (laughs) chameleons have that kind of look they kind of mouth breathe and they do this kind of gulping thing they do yeah that it's it's some sort of a reflex for reasons that i don't know that anybody has accounted for and it really does look like they're gulping at the air not just they're breathing deeply but they're actually like gulping eating the air that's like obscure Shakespeare reference for this weekend. That's that's the one that showed up for me. For you, swinged. Uh, yeah. Emily, did you have like uh, an obscure Shakespeare reference to add to the pot? Oh man, I didn't take notes on one. No, I was. Uh, I noticed the times that he very clearly uses the word metamorphosed to yeah. reference the changes. Uh, both, yeah, it's echoed in both Proteus's case and in Valentine's case, and. It's like him advertising to the world. I really care about Ovid. <laughs> Pay attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Emily, for those of us who are less familiar with Ovid, can you give us like a real, like a brief bio? Who is oh, Ovid? Oh, geez. I really can't do that for you. But I, I do know that his metamorphosis is concerned with changeability, right? They're, yeah. The gods are always changing and variable and... um that is about all that I can give you. <laughs> um, a contemporary of, oh gosh, I think Caesar Augustus, maybe a little bit before mm. Caesar Augustus. Apparently, I've never, I've read Metamorphoses like three times. I had to teach it, so I had to read it. Um, 
I that's how not we most get of this. us read things. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, this is the reason like you read the classics because you have to yeah. teach somebody else the classics. That's right. It's a long running argument in favor of vegetarianism. Hmm. I mean, I read the first few times and I didn't get a whisker of that. And then I read a little <laughs> interpretation of why like vegetarianism was so important to Ovid. And I was like, ah, no, I don't buy it at all. And then I read it for a third time. I was like, it's in every page. <laughs> Are you really serious? Is. I swear to you, I'm not exaggerating at all. It's like, <laughs> it's wild. I know it's really crazy. I mean, like, that's what good interpretation does, right? You're yeah. like, how? I, I never, I don't see all this that you're advocating for. And then you go back and you read it again. You're like, I see it all again now. I see it all again now. <laughs> that being said, I want to give, um, a caveat about a bit of criticism that I'm going to introduce, and then I'm going to introduce the criticism. On this show, just like our sister podcast, The Plays the Thing, that I think both of you have been on. Emily, have you been on? I'm sorry. On our sister podcast, Close Reads. Um, have you been on Close Reads, Emily? I know Ian I have has. not, no. Okay. Someday we're going to bring you on. Um we kind of pride ourselves in not getting really deep into, you know, critical interpretation, mm -hmm. even though it's what we do. Like the podcast is critical interpretation, but we try to do it as sort of, you know, somewhat naive readers, but we're not going to quote Harold Bloom at you very often. <laughs> right. He shows up in the podcast every <laughs> once in a while, but not that often. Okay. Right. That's my caveat because the plays, the thing is the same sort of thing. Like we could do so much criticism on Shakespeare but we try to just read relatively innocently. Yeah. I have been really influenced by uh, a French anthropologist slash literary critic named Rene Girard. Does that name mean anything to you guys? You're both nodding. Mimesis, yes. right? Right, my Mimesis. And one of his other big kind of beliefs, I think he died maybe in the last five years, French anthropologist, really? converted late in life to Catholicism. One of his big things is that um, human society is basically built on rivalry. So rivalry exists whenever somebody wants something because we are all mimetic. We have this mimetic desire, mimesis, as Emily said. Well, when we see somebody want something, that creates this kind of like mirrored desire in us to want the same thing, which is explains why so much inane stuff can be like wanted by so many people, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. you know, like I look at eighties fashion, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> how in the world did that work for so many people? I, Rene Girard unlocked it all for me. <laughs> My medic desire, you brilliant. know, it's just brilliant. Like, women's shoulder pads at that time. I look back, I'm just like, oh my gosh, it's just so horrible looking <laughs> and everybody did it. My medic desire. It's the only possible explanation. <laughs> um, the Proteus and Valentine, Valentine seem to have my medic desire for the same woman. Valentine has it first. Proteus shows up and he mimics his friend's desire. You know, they both want the same thing. And of course it has to come to a head. There has to be some sort of like rivalry that produces conflict. And that's where the solution to our play begins. And, and that mimetic desire is another kind of 
trope for me that shows up in Shakespeare pretty frequently, people yeah. wanting the same thing. That's really interesting to me because in maybe I'm misremembering in act one, there's a conversation between Valentine and Proteus. It might even be the conversation that opens the play and Valentine as yet not in love mm. says some things that are maybe critical is too strong a word, but conveys to his friend that he thinks he's, he's making kind of a fool of himself. That Proteus is making a fool of himself. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yep. In love, right. That uh-huh. love is doing things to him that make him, make him seem foolish. Um, so I wonder to what extent Valentine's approach to his own lover is a reflection of what he saw in Proteus before he. Oh, 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 that's so interesting. So it's actually not Proteus mimicking Valentine's desire, but it was like Valentine doesn't even really, or does he know the object of Proteus's? Does he know Julia at that point? I think he does. I, I think he does. Okay. But he's more mimicking what you're suggesting is what Valentine, Valentine is actually mimicking the love that Proteus has for has modeled Julia. Him. Yeah. yeah right. In, in, in its tone, right. In the, the, the passionate, you know, blown, blown down and over by, by this, this romantic love that just takes over and then, and you do anything for it. And yeah, because what I can't get over is the Duke of Milan, who doesn't appear to be a very strong character, uh-huh. but <laughs> the Duke of Milan by the end of the play is everything all but kissing Valentine's feet, right? Mm. You are the greatest man I've ever met in my life. Mm. And well, really? I mean, the guy was going to elope with your daughter. Yeah. And now he's become the leader of a band of outlaws. And that's a uh-huh. real, that's a mark for him. <laughs> I got, I'm super confused. I, and I want, so maybe that, maybe the, the, all of that taken together is Shakespeare saying, by the way, the way we think about romantic love is flawed, seriously mm. flawed. Mm. Um, that it isn't worship. And if it is worship, it doesn't know itself. Um, which would then make Lance the real lover of the piece. I yeah. did that. I'm in. Yeah. Sign, sign me up for Lance's perspective. <laughs> He's the instructive voice yeah. of the play. I can absolutely buy that. I mean, what, what do we think of um, Sylvia? Because I, I, the play, I think, treats her as like this, this magnet for Proteus and Valentine. <laughs> but what do we know about her other than presumably she's beautiful, is stately, graceful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, what, what do we know about her, though? She is the only constant figure, I think, as I, as I look back. Even Julia starts out at least she protests that she doesn't like Proteus. And then she through the letter, it comes to like him, but Sylvia doesn't do that. She chooses her poison and sticks to it uh, in the face of everything. So she's got that going for her. Yeah. Constancy. Which is the virtue that men lack, right? Yeah. Apparently. I don't know. Maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> mm. uh, we've, we've clearly been reading Shakespeare. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Was Ju- Wait, is Sylvia all that beautiful? Or Because there's a whole thing about a portrait. And when Julia sees the portrait and then sees the woman, there's a comment about how the artist may have been overly kind in his. Oh, oh, oh. That could just be sour grapes from Julia. Well, no, but- Speed 
talks to Valentine and says, you haven't seen her since she's been deformed. And then there's the whole thing about how love is blind, et cetera, et cetera. But he really is down on her looks. Yeah. It would be just like Shakespeare to make the object of everyone's affection and, and the Helen of Troy of the scenario not all that attractive. Right, 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 right. <laughs> oh, she's fine. <laughs> she's fine. Um, we we just brought up speed. I, I just want to mention um, this little scene that we heard the audio of at the beginning of the play. The marks of love that Speed sees on Valentine. Um, and we get this kind of laundry, writ, laundry list. Uh, to relish a love song like a robin redbreast. To walk alone like one that had the pestilence. To sigh like a schoolboy that had lost his ABCs. That little bit shows up again in As You Like It. Do you guys remember the scene in As You Like It? Orlando and who is Orlando's um, lover, Rosalind, find each other in the woods. And they were in love back home. They both got kicked out. They find each other in the woods. And Rosalind, of course, disguised as a boy, meets Orlando. And she's like, you have all the marks of love on you. Mm -hmm. And she enumerates them one by one by one. And I love Is it. Exactly like it's, the same list. No, it's a it's a different list, but it has that same sort of cadence and the same sort of like you look like a fool. You look like an absolute clown. You have all the marks of love on you, you know. Yeah. And it is this sense. I mean, this is something that shows up over and over in Shakespeare that love is like you kind of wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. You know, it just makes you look and act like an absolute fool and it's also but it's the best place in the world to possibly be i mean it's a drug is what it is mm -hmm. it's a drug yeah and i i sometimes wonder like where shakespeare the equivocator really is on like romantic love because it's the subject of like every single one of his comedies you know and he seems to endorse it wholeheartedly, but he does also, as Emily's, you know, pointed out, as you both pointed out, um, it's full of suspicious motives. Mm. It makes us act like fools. It makes us even look like fools. We have all the marks of love on us, and we just like sound like fools when we when we're struck by it. Hmm. Yeah, I'm rethinking. Shakespeare and romantic love, you guys. That's where <laughs> I kind of have landed. I wonder if he comes down on friendship instead, even hmm. in his romantic relationships. I wonder. The closer it comes to friendship, the more legitimate. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, the more legitimate it is. Yeah. I'm thinking about the... Um, that kind of vision of courtly love in the medieval world. I mean, Dante and Beatrice, he, yep. he worships her, absolutely worships her. He paints this portrait of her as, you know, the incarnation of wisdom in the divine comedy. And there's such an exaltation to it, I think in part because they weren't married they didn't have much of anything. I mean, like they didn't have it's a relationship, real. you know, yeah. like he yeah. admired her from a great distance. And there was, there was, that was kind of like 
something that was smiled upon in many aspects or in many eras of the medieval world is that, yeah, take someone who is your sort of like ideal lover into your heart. Nothing will ever become of it, but you can kind of enshrine her as your ideal of beauty, goodness, and truth. Yep. And surely Shakespeare has inherited a little bit of that in his own day. Right? Am I crazy? Am I wrong? He seems to include it in his plays, but he always seems to knock it down in some way. Uh-huh. I mean, as you were saying that, I was thinking, give me Shakespeare's Beatrice over Dante's any day. At oh, least me as too. a woman. 100%. Me too. Absolutely. I wonder if <laughs> we're not here to discuss whether Shakespeare was a Protestant or not. Right. Okay. Are you sure? <laughs> having said that, having said that, I wonder if if part of the reason he sets up these courtly love scenarios and then knocks them down or makes them look farcical is because the it seems to me one of the biggest goals of that that chivalric love ideal is to borrow the auspices of the lover for the self in order to improve one's soul. Uh-huh. Right? Like one who one who is loving um can appropriate the things that a lover learns a real lover right yeah self-sacrifice and patience and gentleness and um <laughs> the fruits of the spirit as it were mm-hmm. right that, that one learns in real relationship they can they can be appropriated without any of the uh confrontation of the self that happens in real relationships i wonder if shakespeare is calling bs to that whole idea yeah or that the love that valentine and proteus are pursuing isn't a real one and it's because they're in pursuit of themselves. Yeah. Well, Valentine writes lovers. himself a love letter. That seems to be yeah. <laughs> pretty clear. Yeah. yeah. That's a that's a really intriguing thought to me. And yeah, I, I think about um, Shakespeare's position as a playwright. Anyone who you know is an artist has to kind of like operate within two realms at once. One is kind of like the given cultural reality that you are in, mm-hmm. and the other is where you wish that people would go as a result of seeing your work. And of course, I'm an unabashed Shakespeare fan, so of course I'm going to say this. He is so incredibly sophisticated at that, mm-hmm. and I think part of the reason he is so sophisticated at like holding up cultural, I don't know what we're going to call them, idols is maybe too strong of a word, but patterns or habits, and then subtly chipping away at them, the stakes for him are incredibly high. It's not just that he'll lose his audience if he pushes too hard, but if he pushes too hard on certain religious questions, I mean, he'll lose his head. Literally, he'll lose his head. Right. So I'm thinking about, I don't know if you guys know Richard II very well, but we did Richard II maybe a year ago. And he presents to Shakespeare this question of what do you do when a king who has been appointed by God in this view, this kind of divine right of king's view, is a rotten king? What do you do? So Richard II is deposed in the play. And all of the kind of um, secondary figures of the play, not all of them, several of the secondary figures of the play recognize Richard II is not a good king. And they also are deeply concerned 
that he was appointed by God to this position. And don't we just have to sort of endure this? And I think Shakespeare leaves it pretty open-ended, but his sophistication in asking that question and still keeping his head on his neck is to me like a wonder of his artwork. Didn't Essex use that play to incite rebellion against Queen Elizabeth? Did he? I don't know about that. I think so. Yeah, they really? staged the play um, and and got in trouble for it. But but it was his use of it. Shakespeare still got off free. <laughs> so. Yeah. Wow. I did not. I did not know that. I think of um, Prince Charles playing the Richard the Second monologue in The Crown. Did you, did you, do you guys watch The Crown? Yeah. Oh man, Ben Wishaw's performance of Richard II is amazing. It's so good. And I think it's one of his first scenes as he does this famous, um, like I can't remember the name of the, the shorthand name of the monologue, uh, but it's basically the moment that Richard II kind of realizes he's not just a king, he's also a man, mm-hmm. you know, who bleeds who needs friends and it, i, I thought you, it was are you talking yeah, it was about really poignant that 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 was the, the crown yeah yeah not the yeah. Hollow oh that the hollow crown the crown oh, I'm oh, oh oh you were talking about the hollow crown emily um no i, I remember the scene that. you're talking about tim it's fabulous absolutely fabulous. fabulous was that josh o'connor's prince charles Yes. Yes. That's yes. who I thought that you were saying. Sorry, because sorry, I don't know Major the actor's name. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I don't I don't know the actor's name or I didn't know the actor's name, but yeah, it's the actor that played Prince Charles in the crown. It's spine tiggling. Yeah. Yeah. That that kid can act. Yeah. He's he's so good. <laughs> he's really, so really good. good. Um that being said, I might nominate for worst Shakespeare ab- adaptation. Um, his Romeo and Juliet. Oh my goodness! I didn't it even watch bad. it. Oh my goodness! It oh, bad. it's just so heartbreaking. Because I, I, I love him as an actor, and I think he did the best that he could. But oh, anyway, <laughs> not many get Romeo and Juliet right. <laughs> it's tough. It's really tough. You can't hate Romeo and Juliet as an educated person, but I don't love it. No, okay, and um, how, why not, Ian? Why not? Oh, I just Emily, help me. You, we've had this conversation a million times. Uh, you think I don't know. Actually, I know that you think it's too pat or too melodramatic. It's on, it's on or, the nose. It's on the nose. That's that's huh. what I'll say. But it's Shakespeare. It may be that it's on the nose because he invented the idea mm. and said it more clearly than everyone has since. So he gets off scot free. Uh, but it's not my favorite of the plays. And, and is the conclusion of the play on the nose? Like Romeo and Juliet, oh, they could have been everything. and said they die in each other's arms, the victim of like warring families. Is, is that the on the nose or what? You know, to be perfectly honest with you, I think half of what bothers me is the way that the play is traditionally read or popularly, mm. I should say, not traditionally, popularly read, which is that it's a great tragedy. Mm. When in fact... Um, it's a story about two children mm. in a flight to ill-disciplined children with terrible parents. Mm. Um, and so it's not about, it's not elevating this, this uh, star crossed love as much as it's criticizing uh, um, 
passion, criticizing passion and criticizing their parents for not curbing it. I can get with you on the parents. I have to say, I think Julia is like an absolute comet. I don't think that she is, she's young in the play, but like just reading her words when we did it on this show, I was like, uh -huh. oh man, this is not a child. Okay, Romeo is a child. For I'll me, Romeo is a child. Well, he but, is. Yeah. I yeah. But you think They're Juliet both young. rescues the, the relationship then? Say again, Ian. You think Juliet rescues the relationship? Then? For me, she does. Oh, okay. All right. Next time you read it, next time you see it, especially if it's not like a really truncated version and you get to hear all of her monologues, oh man, she is from another planet. She is so wise and ahead of her years. And I think mm. that Romeo is kind of scrambling to catch up. And, you know, maybe they would have ended up being peers had they lived. But I think she is um, well ahead of him as far as like maturity and insight. And I think he's kind of like a boy in love. And I think he's doing his brave warrior thing. Like, I'll do anything to be with you. And I, and I, you know, I, uh, what's the right word? I don't commend that, but I, I respect it in a way. Sure. Yeah. Okay, but Tim. Yeah. Yeah. I will read it again. <laughs> okay. You know, okay. I think he's playing with the same structure here in Two Gentlemen of Verona with Julia and uh, Turio maybe as a pre-Tybalt sort of character. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or maybe a Paris kind of character. I mean, isn't Paris kind of a dolt? Yeah. Yeah. Although Paris at least has the courage of his convictions. Yeah, right. Turio right. seems to be kind of a milk toast. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, You guys, let's talk about enough about Shakespeare. Let's talk about you. Okay. Can we just talk about you? Um, I want to know more. Let me back up. I think of the Andrews family as sort of like one of the royal families in the uh, Christian classical education <laughs> renewal movement. I really do. I'm like, I'm really serious about that. You guys have, um, you've done remarkable work. You've been at it for longer than almost anybody else. Whenever I tune in and hear you guys, you have such wonderful things to say and such dexterity with the authors and the books that I respect. So I just want to know, like, what are you guys, what are you guys up to? What are you thinking about? What are you podcasting about? What are you reading about? Just consider it a blank slate question. Emily. Oh, wow. Well, let's see. Where, where do you even begin? <laughs> uh, that's a very broad question. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Well, Center for Lit is up to some fun things right now. We are working on publishing Adam's, uh, Ian's father's first book. So we're looking forward to that coming out. What's um, that book about? It's going to be uh, our, our view of literary analysis, I guess, literary mm. theory. Um, that backs up our curriculum. Um, so that's going to be fun. Uh, we are working up our next season of Bibliophiles, which is going to be on poetry. And uh, personally, I am 
I get to read a lot of Evelyn Waugh and Graham Greene mm. in the next couple of months for my master's program. So I'm looking forward to that. What are the um, what are the Evelyn Waugh and Graham Greene books that you're spending time with? Let's see. I just purchased them on Amazon today, so they're sort of fresh. Uh, we're starting with Decline and Fall, and mm, we're doing. I'm using your copy of it. <laughs> um, Welcome to it. <laughs> Black Mischief, uh, Brideshead Revisited, of course. Um, Helena, which I had never heard of before. Um, for Graham Greene, we're doing The Power and the Glory, The End of the Affair, uh, and uh, The Quiet American, mm. and a couple others that don't come to mind, but the standards. Um, and you are studying at Faulkner. Which is where our friend Matt Bianco just finished his PhD. Yes. Um, are you guys ever even on campus? Have you ever even been on campus at the same time? We haven't. I did have the opportunity to talk to him about it, and he was very kind in helping me get into the program. So. And now they're getting free advertising for us. Yes. Yeah, there Baltimore you go. <laughs> Ian, what's going on for you? What are you reading, thinking about? Um, what's going on? Other things that are happening at Center for Lit. Yeah, so Emily gave a pretty good summary of the of the Center for Lit um, scene. Uh, for me personally, I am in the middle. I just finished first semester Greek at seminary, mm. and I'm about to register for second semester Greek. And to be perfectly honest, that is that was a difficult decision to come to because I'm really ready to jump back into reading and writing uh, rather than quizzing vocabulary and uh -huh. trying to wrap my head around this language. Um, but it has also been really illuminating. I mean, I'm, in, I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying studying the syntax of the new Testament. Um, so that's, that's what most of my academic pursuits have been organized um, around. In Knox seminary. Yeah. How much is John Knox kind of like mentioned just in everyday classes there? I mean, is he <laughs> like, you know, I went to Reformed Theological Seminary, and though it's not named for John Calvin, John Calvin is in everybody's everybody's mouth when you are at Reformed Theological Seminary. Is it the same with Knox? Um, not as much. Yeah. I've heard him mentioned a couple of times, but it also might just be that I'm still in the core, as it were. Um, okay. Taking some of the survey classes. I'm moving very slowly, doing it online one course at a time, um, not trying to hustle through the program. Yeah. So, it might be that he comes up more as we go along. I wouldn't be yeah. surprised. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Galen and I were in Edinburgh for our uh, honeymoon. And yeah, yeah John John fun. Knox is still all over the place in the city. All oh, over the place. I got to get yeah. over there. One of my thoughts, I'm dream, if, we're, if we're dreaming about the future, I would love to pursue a doctorate at Edinburgh University. That would be really yeah. cool. Yeah. I, for my money, it's the prettiest city in Europe. I mean... Maybe I've really? been to 40 city. It is in, you would not <laughs> believe it. You would not believe it on a clear day. What it's like. It is, it is, it's stunning. Oh. And, it, and part of it is because just the, uh, how would I say it? Just the topography of the city is so unique. It kind of valleys. And then, so there is a part called the new town and new town by the way, is like mid 1700s. That's what we mean by Newtown, right? <laughs> right. Between Newtown and Old Town 
is uh, this kind of valley. And so if you're in Newtown, you look across the valley. And the valley is not a wide chasm by any means. It's maybe a quarter mile wide. But you look across this valley to a like stark jutting upshot that rises to the castle. Um, and, on, and the castle is built on top of all of these incredibly kind of smoky, granite, upshot, it's almost volcanic. Maybe it is volcanic. I don't know. Oh, it's hard. I, I clearly cannot do it justice, <laughs> but it is so stunning when you oh. can see it. It's it's a it's you know it's hidden by fog eight months out of the year, but during the summer, yeah, she takes the veil off and and oh man, what a beauty. well the the program that I've been looking at and it, I, we're not in anything like range of applying, but the program I've been looking at requires me to spend two, two weeks, four weeks every summer, uh, in, in person on campus. And then the rest of it is remote learning. So that <laughs> would be a bummer. I don't know <laughs> yeah. That either, would be a real bummer. The Andrews are very proud of their Scottish heritage. And uh, I have some concerns that like when, when we get over there, there's going to be like Macbeth style lane <laughs> to get to the clan castle. <laughs> I, did, I did the math one time. <laughs> I think at the time I did it, it's been it's been a decade and a half or so. Maybe I did did the math and figured out I would need to kill seventeen people, including <laughs> my father and grandfather, to be to in achieve line for the Macbeth land. to ma- achieve. <laughs> oh, I see, I see, I see. Like if you're gonna take that yeah. land, yep. There's yeah, you've got to hack through somebody. <laughs> I really have got to. Yeah, I have to bloody the spear. Yeah. Well, I leave that to your conscience. Probably is <laughs> a nice piece of land, man. <laughs> hey, I want to thank both of you for coming on the show. We have we are in discussions about you guys doing another one-off, if I'm not mistaken. And that's, right. that's going to happen. We just got to figure out when it's going to happen. Um, I want to thank the platform organization for this podcast, the Searcy Institute. So this podcast is part of the Searcy Podcast Network. Circe, spelled C-I-R-C-E, is leading the resurgence along with Center for Lit and a couple of other fine organizations. Um, They're leading the resurgence of classical education around the country. And if you would like to know more, please visit their website, C-I-R-C-E dot O-R-G. That's where you can find out more both about Circe and about the classical education renewal. You guys... Until I see you again for another one of these one podcast episodes, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having having us. having us. So fun. Absolutely. Um, And listeners, thanks so much. Tune in next time for our continued adventures in Shakespeare. Thanks and happy listening.